Hey, Sanctus Church, we are so glad that you've decided to join us again. And if you're not part of our community and you're joining us for the first time, you are also most welcome. Today is the very last sermon in this series on spiritual practices. It's hard to believe it's already been 10 weeks. And like I said at the beginning of this series, we decided to move this series from the summer uh, into the late spring and early summer because of COVID-19 and because we wanted to, in a good way, hijack this global monastic moment so we could redeem our routines and actually encounter God in brand new ways. Now, I realize years from now, some of you might be listening to this series, and it's not during COVID-19. But the point is, no matter what season of life you're in, we have discovered, or, or rediscovered, depending on who you are, the power of spiritual practices. Because through spiritual practices, if you're a Christian, you get to encounter the God that you love, be transformed by Him, and walk with Him. Now, one thing I have not mentioned this whole series is this. You can actually sort of bucket all the different practices we've talked about into sort of two categories. It's called the disciplines of absence and the disciplines of engagement. They sort of show you the in or the out of what's going on. The disciplines of absence, when you give up something, it's solitude and silence and fasting and simplicity and chastity and biblical secrecy and sacrifice. Now, the disciplines of engagement are study and worship, and service, and prayer, and fellowship, and confession, and celebration. Now, now we're going to end this series today with two major spiritual practices that are so needed in our world, so needed in our church, so needed in your friendship circle, in your family if you're married, and in your life. Celebration and rest. Now, again, all human beings can celebrate. We tend to party lots, and, and all human beings can rest. Most of us sleep. But there's something intentional and beautiful and spiritual here that a lot of us miss. And by the way, celebration and rest become Christian spiritual practices. When we encounter God through Jesus by His Spirit and God the Father's kingdom grows in us, around us, and through us. So as I've done for 10 weeks, let me do it one more time. Let me give you a definition so we're all on the same page. We've got a common script to begin this conversation today. Celebration is utter delight and joy in ourselves, our life, and our world as a result of our faith and confidence in God's greatness, beauty, and His goodness. Now, how interesting, almost how counterintuitive, how weird that we think we need to make this a chosen spiritual discipline. Why? Well, easy. Celebration can be ripped away by the tyranny of the urgent. Celebration and biblical joy can be ripped away, we would think, by seasons of life. If it's not part of our chosen rhythms and our spiritual makeup, it will be replaced by so many other things, bad things, neutral things, and good things. And yet, celebration cannot be replaced. It cannot be downplayed. It cannot be removed. How did our Christian movement begin? Have you thought about it? With an invitation to what? Celebrate. 
to have joy. What did Gabriel say to the shepherds in the Christmas story? Luke 2.10, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. What is one of the overarching promises of the Christian life said by Jesus in John 15.11? I have told you this so that my joy, what, may be in you and your joy may be complete. How does the whole story end? When you read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you get to Revelation and God makes all things right and he restores all of creation, new heavens, new earth. How does it end? It ends with a party, with food, with a wedding, intentional celebration. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So why is celebration so important? Why must we choose to celebrate and choose to have joy? Well, first... It's rooted in God himself. Remember the definition above that I just started with. We find joy in us and in those around us and in the world because of another. Now, this is critically important. Let's already pause right here. This is where actually we as Christians, but actually the human family continually drinks the wrong Kool-Aid. It's almost fatal at points. Most human beings try finding joy in themselves, period. Or they try finding joy through others, period. Or they try finding joy in the world, through activities in the world, through travel and and food, and you fill in the blank. But the Christian understanding is this. We find joy in ourselves, in others, in the world, through another, God himself. God is great. God is beautiful. God is good. Now, some of you are saying, John, no, 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 no. (laughs) I can't find joy right now. In this season, because I'm preaching right now, COVID-19, John, are you joking? Economic uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen by Christmas in our country, around the world. You don't know my life. You don't understand the state of my mental health, my family. There are new tensions between North and South Korea, but we're trying to grapple with race or systematic racism. Every 20 minutes, another person becomes a refugee around the world because they're running from war or famine or you fill in the blank. And all of us are doomsday scrolling time and time and time again and never stopping. Yes, that's all true. But our joy as Christians is rooted in God. And our ability to celebrate is rooted in him. It's like the story of Peter and Jesus. He was walking on water till he looked at the waves and he sunk. In other words, look up first. Don't look sideways or down. God is great. <laughs> what does that mean? It means he's sovereign. He's in control. He's providential. He's involved. God has defeated sin, death, and the demonic. He is judge. Nothing done in secret or publicly will ever get by him. He will judge all things. He's savior. He gives forgiveness. He's guaranteed us resurrection. God is all all present, all knowing, all powerful. God is great. That should give you a reason to celebrate. But he's also beautiful. The world is beautiful because the author and the great mathematician and the great architect and the great artist is beautiful too. All the goodness of the world is reflected because of God himself. And lastly, we can celebrate because God is not only great and beautiful, he's good. God is loving all the time. God is joy yesterday, today, tomorrow. God is peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He's these things yesterday. He's these things today. He's these things tomorrow. 
That's why Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 8, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord, what is your strength? Now, when we stop to realize the tsunami of bad ideas and negative thinking that inundates our lives on a daily basis, especially now with the rise of social media, it is not surprising that we need to deliberately practice the discipline of thinking what God wants us to think about. The peace that God brings is the atmosphere of real biblical celebration. Richard Foster, I was reading him on celebration this week, said these words. Celebration is, the cent- is central to all the other spiritual disciplines. Without a joyful spirit of festivity, the disciplines become dull and death-breathing tools in the hands of a modern Pharisee. Every discipline should be characterized by carefree gaiety, the essence of thanksgiving. Joy, he says, don't forget, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. Often I'm inclined to think that joy is the motor that keeps everything else going. Without joyous celebration to infuse the other spiritual practices, we will sooner or later abandon them. Joy produces the energy. Joy makes us strong. And then Richard Foster, thinking on the Bible, says ancient Israel was commanded to gather at least three times a year to celebrate the goodness of God. These festival holidays were the highest sense holidays. And and these experiences were given so we could gain strength and give cohesion to the people of God. Now, you can read about this, for example, in Leviticus 23, 37. God says, these are the appointed festivals of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall celebrate at the time appointed to them. Now, there are multiple different festivals within the Jewish tradition. One of them is they gather together and they celebrate the deliverance of the Jewish people from Haman during the time of Esther. The most famous one, of course, that all of us know about is Passover, the celebration of the Jewish people being delivered from slavery. There's Hanukkah, celebrating the rededication of the temple. The Jewish people have created within the biblical tradition and beyond the biblical tradition, festivals shaped around God's command to remember and celebrate. Rhythmed, intentional, God-rooted celebration with food and scripture and family and joy and fun. So, okay, here's the question. How do I personally participate in the spiritual discipline of celebration? And how do we as Sanctus Church do this also? Well, let's start with the spiritual practice of celebration in your own personal walk and in my personal walk. Let me start with the very passage that I preached on week one when COVID hit the world and everything closed down. To celebrate means you need to choose joy. And not just joy, biblical joy. And to understand biblical joy, you can only go to one book in the Bible primarily. Philippians. Paul's sitting in jail at the end of his life, under house arrest, knowing he's going to be executed sooner than later. And in that state, he writes the greatest treatise in the Bible on joy. And it reads like this. And if you've grown up in church, you know this verse. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, say it, what? Rejoice. To have joy is a command. He says, choose it. It was Augustine of Hippo that said, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Now let's be reminded of what joy is and what it's not. As one said, Christian joy is not the temporal kind which comes and goes with your circumstances. Rather, it's predicated altogether on one's relationship with the Lord. 
it finds expression in rejoicing, which is not a Christian option, but imperative. So in other words, the path to joy is found in choosing joy, and choosing joy is obeying a command. Paul says, just do it. Rejoice. The spirit of celebration will never be around unless you choose, first of all, to participate in it, and second, it's rooted in God. What he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do. If you ever stop trusting God and saying he's good or in control or holy or loving, we'll never be able to rejoice about the seen or unseen, the expected or unexpected. That's why four verses later, Paul says, after he says, listen, we've all got to be thankful. We've all got to be joyful. Then he says, oh, by the way, this is how you choose and build spiritual practice celebration moments. Verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Okay, ready? I've shared this before in this series. I don't need to do it again. When Paul says truth, noble, right, and pure, he's referring to the Bible. Those four descriptors have to do with what we call specific revelation, the Bible itself. So he says, think on who God is. Think about what his kingdom's about, his laws, his gospels, what's holy, what's majestic, what's moral, what's right. Think on God's life-giving laws. Think about who he is. Think about all the promises of God. In other words, he says, if you want to celebrate well, you need to know scripture. Because to celebrate, you need to know what you're celebrating and who you know. But then Paul goes farther, and I want to sit here, and he says, also, if you're going to choose celebration long-term, be marked by that alleluia, <laughs> you need to also look at what's lovely and admirable. This is what theologians call common grace. It's God's fingerprints all around us in the world. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, everything's messed up in our world, but it's marred and totally depraved, but not utterly depraved. See, much in nature, and many of our friends and family and other human beings that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, and much within culture or literature or art or food or fill in the blank, is not evil. Much of our world is still excellent and lovely and praiseworthy. And what Paul is actually saying to us is if you want to be marked by the spirit of celebration, then you need to know God's word and love God's world. <laughs> Paul is teaching that as the original church in Philippi, as things are getting darker, don't only see evil everywhere. This is critical. If, if you're just online scrolling all the time on Instagram, you'll think the world is literally just evil everywhere. And it's not. I love when one scholar said, Paul perhaps knows that since the Philippians are being persecuted by friends and society around them, they'll be tempted to reject everything outside of the church as tainted with evil. If so, then this list with its admonition to look for the future virtue in the wider world reminds the Philippians that although society sometimes seems hostile and evil, it's still part of God's world and contains much good that the believer can affirm. So this is critical. He says, you've got to see God's fingerprints everywhere. And then Paul says in verse 9, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, you put that into practice. Oh, and then the God of peace will be with you. 
So ready? He says, if you want to practice the spiritual discipline of celebration, you need to choose joy. Where do you start? God first. You need to choose to see and remind yourself of who God is, because if you know who God is, you'll end up celebrating. Number two, if you want to really understand and celebrate, you've got to use another spiritual practice, the discipline of study, because the more you know God's word, the more you'll know his promises, the more you'll know the end, the no the more you'll know the beginning and you can have joy. But not only that, he says, you need to intentionally look for the fingerprints of God and nature and people and the good deeds of humans, not just Christians, in literature and food and art and life. That is how you practice the spiritual discipline of celebration. Let me give you an example. The last 15 weeks have been very difficult. Last four weeks, incredibly difficult. I would actually say in the last three weeks, some of the most difficult uh, most difficult season in leadership I've had in doing this for now my 23rd year. How did I practice celebration during everything that was going down? And, and when I was not, by the way, feeling at all like I wanted to celebrate at all, total opposite. I would in the morning go out on my deck to a rocking chair with a coffee. And even before I would read the scriptures, I would listen to birds sing. Now, hear this. I've always loved the singing of birds. But in the last three weeks, they almost became louder and more intense. And I intentionally stopped and listened. And I would say to myself, though everything seems bad and everything seems like it's falling apart, and I'm not sure how we're going to get out of all sorts of things, I know that not everything is evil and not everything is bad and not everything is broken. And I listen to birds singing and I realize there's still good in the world. And God created these birds to sing and they're still worship. That's an example of how you choose to celebrate. You know God and you don't forget him and who he is. You know his word and you celebrate the promises in there. You see the good in the world, even when you're inundated with bad. That's just the first way you do this. Well, there's more. The second way to practice spiritual discipline is you make gathered worship priority. Weekly, when we gather, we are moved back to biblical celebration, whether we feel it or not. Now, I know at this moment, as I'm preaching this sermon, we're in lockdown and we've not met in person for over three months. But the discipline of gathered worship does still remind us we need to encounter God, be with his people. And one of the greatest aspects of gathering in church weekly is what? Celebration. What do we say all the time here at Sanctus Church? It's this, that the Holy Spirit is guaranteed to be encountered here. Why? Because it says in Psalm 22, 3, you inhabit the praises of your people. It says in James, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Paul teaches that we as human beings, as Christians are the literal temples of God. Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, I am with them. See, this is one expression of celebration, whether you're feeling great or terrible or happy or sad or depressed. When you come into God's presence among God's people, you will be moved, ready, to the practice, to the holy habit, to the discipline of celebration, even if you don't feel it. And by the way, when we gather together in connect groups or, or in large worship gatherings, celebrating big or connecting small, as examples, that is another discipline. It's called fellowship. It means that we gather together to be among God and his people. 
So worship God personally and corporately, listen to his word, walk in his world, see the good and beauty, gather among his people weekly in a rhythmed, chosen, disciplined celebration, no matter how you're feeling, and you will grow in your celebration. Ah, but there's more. You cannot do the practice of celebration. You can't even do the practice of fellowship if you actually don't pair it with another spiritual discipline. You can't do any of this without the holy habit of rest. Celebration and Sabbath are connected. It was Walter Brueggemann who said this, in our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath is an act of resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods alone. I don't know if you were part of our church in the last few years when we went through the Ten Commandments. I'd love you, by the way, to go back maybe this summer and listen to that series. But we walked for, through the, the commandment on Sabbath, and, and we had this conversation in that series, in, on that sermon, on how you need to see the first three connected to the fourth. It was uh, J.I. Packer that helped us the most when he wrote, we must honor God not only with our loyalty, commandment one, and our thought life, commandment two, and our words, commandment three, but also our use of time in rhythm of toil and rest. Six days for work, crowned by one day for worship. God's claim over our Sabbaths reminds us that all our time is his gift to be given back to him and used for him. Take my life includes take my moments, my days, take my time, take all of it. That's where true obedience to the, to the fourth commandment begins. So, like I worked out in that sermon, some of you might be saying, John, what's the Sabbath? Well, well, God, after creating for six days, rested on the seventh day and made it different, made it holy, made it separate. Now, for the Jewish community, Sabbath starts on Friday night at, sunset, at sundown and ends on sundown on Saturday night. And when God gave the commands, the Ten Commandments, and included Sabbath as one of them, remember what the Jewish people had just been through. Because by the way, God gives his commands during a time of liberation. The Hebrew people have just come out of, I think, 430 years of slavery, oppression, no freedom. And most of the time, we have never connected the dots that Sabbath is a gift. When the Jewish people were slaves, worship, rest, prayer, play had become foreign realities to an oppressed people. God had said to Pharaoh, let my people go into the desert to worship me. And Pharaoh said, no, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten plagues. Pharaoh gives in. Now they're free. And, and now they're wandering with God. And God gives them the Ten Commandments. And the fourth command is the last vertical command so they could rest. And it's actually empowerment on a communal scale. God gives them the reason in Exodus 20, 11. And I'll make the connection, by the way, back to the disciplines. For six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So work six days, then Sabbath. Now, did you catch it? God does something profoundly important. He ties this back to creation. When anything is tied back to creation, it's not up for grabs. Marriage, gender, children, the call to work, the, the call, by the way, to be good stewards of creation— all of these pre-sin, God designs. 
and they become what theologians call creation ordinances, ethical imperatives that must be followed if you know your Creator. Now, you can go back, by the way, and listen to the whole sermon on why do we meet on Sundays and not on Saturdays, and what's the difference between the Old and New Testament. But for today's conversation, here's the summary of the spiritual discipline of rest and how it connects. God knows we all need to stop. We cannot always be working, always pedal to the metal, always moving, going, and consuming. God comes and says, if you want to celebrate, you need to rest. So do you take Sabbath seriously? Do you even have a Sabbath? Why would you reject a gift you need? And here's the real question. Do you think God asks us, you're more than me, or you know better than me? God's saying, if I rested, why wouldn't you? You're not a machine. God says you're made in my image. Rest is part of being human being, uh, being, a, being a human being and obeying the will of God. Sabbath is set aside to worship, to rest, to pray, to play, to remember, to celebrate, to, to, be, to become fully human. And in that sermon, I just said two things. Sabbath gives us the space to worship and celebrate. The idea of Sabbath is to worship God, to enjoy him, to practice his presence, to hear from his people. One pastor got it right when he said, it takes time to be holy. So this day should be a day filled with spiritual activities like fellowship, celebrating big and connecting small and walking with Jesus. The the Sabbath idea gives you the space to do this other thing. But Sabbath is a call for real rest, number two, and allows for celebration. Uh, Sabbath should be genuinely restful. Like I just said, we, we pray and play on this day. This day should not be about laptops and iPhones and, and, and emails and work and Instagram. And oh, by the way, it shouldn't be about Slack or whatever other thing you use. It should be a day to really play, to have fun, to eat, to have family time. If you're married, this is a day you might have sexual intimacy. It's a day for food or fun or to hang out with friends or stop and look at nature or watch a good movie or go for a bike ride or go for that walk or listen to the birds or whatever your thing is. It was Mark Buchanan in his book, The Rest of God, that says this is actually the real battle. I'm going to quote him again. To refuse Sabbath is in effect to spurn a gift of freedom. It is to resume willingly to what we cried out to God, deliver us. It is choosing what we want shunned. Slaves don't rest. Slaves can't rest. Slaves, by definition, have no freedom to rest. Rest, it turns out, is a condition of liberty. And God calls us to live in the freedom that he won for us with his own outstretched arm. But Sabbath is supposed to be a refusal to go back to Egypt. It's the book of Deuteronomy. But there is one very large, very grim obstacle to keeping Sabbath. It's the problem of taskmasters. Taskmasters. God drowned them. It's true, he said, he dragged the whole Egyptian army to the muddy, weedy sea bottom. But then he says, but we helped them survive. We throw them ropes and pulled them ashore and resuscitated the unconscious ones. Now there's a whole noisy, jostling colony of them still within us. And when we try to step back from our day's work or do Sabbath, the taskmasters in our heads rise up and they look at us menacingly in advance towards us and they say things like, what do you think you're doing? You say, well, I just was going to take a few minutes to, you know, sit down or to rest. Oh, You're going to take a few minutes to sit down. How quaint, how charming. You're going to take a few minutes to sit down. Though there's not a huge, stinking pile of things that you've left undone. You're so weak and so pathetic. I'm I'm warning you, there's a thousand things you need to do. There are a million things to worry about. Get off your lazy. 
The battle is always, will we be mastered by time and work or we, or will we master it and let God be God? This is God calling us to make the hard discipline changes and to resist for the sake of rest in a world that never sleeps. Put it another way, Sabbath is given to us so we can be, have a, we can be human again and have a human rhythm again. So you need to choose joy, and we need to choose joy, and choose celebration, and choose rest. And by the way, why end the series here? Because by the way, this is the gas in the car for the rest of them. Again, it was Richard Foster that said, joy is the end result of spiritual disciplines functioning in our lives and bringing about the transformation of our lives through the disciplines. Many people, oh, just could you listen? Many people try to come into joy far too soon. We often try to pump people up with joy when nothing has actually happened in their life. God has not broken into the routine experience of their daily existence. Celebration comes when common virtues of life are redeemed. Okay. So how do I do this? How do we do this? Well, number one, look at God and celebrate. It's what we learned, by the way, in the discipline of prayer when we did the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. You always start with God. Never yourself, never your friends, never your family, never the world, never God. The more you look at God and the more you know who he is, the more you read scripture about who he is, that he's good, that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that he's providential, that he's loving, that he's holy. As you keep going through this, you will celebrate because in worship, you encounter him. He's good. He's the only consistent one. He's the only one that knows the beginning from the end. He's the only one that is actually not broken like us. Two, be in his word, but also look at his world. Enlist the good and enjoy the good. And, and can I encourage this? I need to stop and maybe do this right now. And, and you might need to do this, by the way, with some of the other practices. So many of us are practicing spiritual disciplines and we haven't categorized them right or let ourselves know that we're doing it. So listening to birds sing is a nice human thing. But when I stopped and said out loud, I am practicing the spiritual discipline of celebration because this is God's world and I'm experiencing the goodness of God through this moment. That's when it became Christian. When you're on a bike ride or going to a good movie or you're going to hang out with friends or you're going fishing or you're going to read a great book or, or fill in the blank, just say under your breath, I am about to practice the discipline of celebration. God is good and much of his world is good. In other words, don't make all these activities so secular. Most things are much more sacred than you realize. Third, choose rest so you can celebrate. And by the way, don't just rest from work. You need to rest from information. I've had a lot of time to reflect on this in the last five weeks specifically. And I think I referenced it earlier in this message about doomsday scrolling. If you're on social media, Facebook, but especially if you're on Twitter or, or Instagram. To do Sabbath means you're not posting all these things or consuming all these things. To rest means to rest from work and information. 
you are not going to biblically celebrate if you're continually consuming and producing. We need to rest. So though we're coming out of COVID-19 now and trying to understand the brand new world we're living in, the question I still asked in the original series of the Ten Commandments still matters. How are you doing Sabbath? How are you guarding Sabbath? How have you designed rest so you can celebrate? If you don't rest, you will not celebrate. If you don't celebrate, you won't have joy. If you don't choose joy, you'll live in darkness. So look at God and celebrate. Look at his world and celebrate. Rest so you can celebrate. And here's the last thing. Strategic celebration matters. Just like we saw in the Old Testament and the New, there are rhythms you have to choose for yourself and for your family that are going to enforce this. Gathering on Sundays, virtually or physically, should be a priority. Why? Because it brings us back to celebration. Uh, connecting small with a group of people so they know how you're doing spiritually and are going to be there when you go, you fall or you're broken. You, that matters. But not only that, Strategic celebration, Christmas, Easter, not just because it's a secular holiday. No, no, we need to make these priorities together to celebrate, to have fun. And also, I would encourage you to choose two or three times a year beyond Christmas, beyond Easter, beyond gathering with the community where you with family or friends just choose strategic times to rest and to celebrate and have fun and be human with each other. One of the most countercultural things we can do at this moment as Christians is choose joy, trust God, and genuinely celebrate God, His Word, His world, and each other. So, Lord, we just want to end by saying thanks for this incredible series. We pray now, uh, in this moment and years from this moment, as people will listen to this series for a long time that there would be real transformation, real encounter, that people would grow in things like biblical secrecy or fasting or, or prayer or, or, fast, or fasting or, or celebration or service, that there would be a long-term marking that happens, that there would be teenagers and young adults that listen to this when they're 40 and 50, they would still be doing these practices, that our church would be marked by these practices. And actually our real prayer is that we would be transformed and the presence of God would grow more and more. Help us, Lord, to see the good in the world and celebrate it. Help us to be close to your word and celebrate it. Help us to know you and celebrate it. And help us to be strategic to rest. Help us rest, Lord. Help us rest. Yeah, we pray this in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. Parting thought, one of the most important reasons why you should rest and celebrate is because it reminds all of us that we're here today and gone tomorrow. And by resting and celebrating, you realize, and I realize, and we realize, that God's got the final say. God has to change the world in the end fully. We're not Him, and we have to trust all that to Him. Yeah, there's real freedom there. I hope you'll participate in it. And we'll see you next week as we begin a brand new series on Christian core identity called The Real You. We'll see you next week.